Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Work, family, church, exercise, sleep. The list of demands on our time seems to be never-ending. It can leave you feeling a little guilty, like you should always be doing one more thing. Rather than sharing better time management tips to squeeze more hours out of the day, my guest Kelly Capic takes a different approach and you're only human. He offers a better way to make peace with the fact that maybe we're not created or designed to do it all. It's a great book and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Kelly Capic. Kelly Capic, wait, welcome back to the show. Get, sorry, I gotta get you. It's Capic, just as so they'll do it. That's all right. But do you really think people like? Do you no, ever think about changing think the vowel? Care. But do you ever think about changing the vowel? Capic versus Capic. I mean, I isn't get called Capic all the time. Little, but... Isn't the so, long vowel a little more powerful? Well, just 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 to be clear, it was like Kapikowski. And then when great grandparents came to Canada, they cut it off. And I'd be a great hockey player if I had that name, but I, but I don't. So I'm not even a hockey player. Anyways, whatever you call me, whatever you want. Sorry, I won't interrupt again. But just don't call you late for dinner. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I was telling you, you know, in our 18 second pre-interview, which you and I don't do pre-interviews. We're we're Zen. We're connected. But uh, I had this uh, experience in college where my college girlfriend um, wanted me to go to her mega church. And uh, after which, about three weeks into it, I, I went to the Amy Zion church and it had a lovely um, experience in the black church for years and years. But uh, the best mega church joke I ever heard was the pastor got up there and said, you know, people ask me what Bible translation I use. And he said, I always say whatever's least convicting, <laughs> which I've used that a lot, actually. I think it's a, it's actually, it's one of the great few good religious jokes. But I would say uh, your book is a little bit of the opposite. You're only human. Hmm. How your limits reflect God's design and why that's good news. It's a little on the convicting side. <laughs> so I mentioned uh -oh. Larry David uh, Larry David coming and saying, it's a little convicting, the book. Um <laughs> Hope, so hopefully it's a, there's some liberation in there too. We'll see. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting because the last time we spoke, um, your last book, which I really loved, was all about human suffering. Mm. And it's almost like this is a sort of bookend book to that, like in the sense of you, you kind yeah. of, um, you're doing the one-two punch of, um, of, of, of the Western tradition about like, hey, you, you're, you know, we're broken. It, mm. We're suffering and and it feels like fragility is a problem uh but it's also it's not just a problem but a promise and i feel like mm -hmm. this is what you're doing in this book it seems like you're saying look this is almost a, a retort to your own <laughs> previous book mm. about about the the real promise of fragility yeah well i, I yeah that's 
aware of you to see how those books go together. I do think it was only after working through the idea of suffering that I think I felt able, even though I'd been thinking about this idea of creation and humanity for decades, I really felt able finally to talk about it because I, after talking about lament and the the need to take suffering seriously, I also finally felt ready to talk about the good of being human and I, rescued from some of the heroic, romanticized view of being human uh, to actually be able to talk about it in hopefully some healthier ways. It's kind of it's like, a- it's uh, sorry, it's kind of like, you know, in Bonhoeffer's uh, Life Together, where he, he kind of says, people who love to talk about community are enemies of real community. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> because, because they when they get in real community and it's not a romanticized version, they hate it. Right. They just like to talk about it. And that's kind of how I feel about being human. People who love to talk about it often have romanticized views of being human rather than real flesh, blood, concrete finitude. So that's what I'm interested in. Do you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm at all or no? I have, but it's been a while. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is the, the, the it validates your point in the sense of you have this Jewish community in LA. And they're fighting every week. And, 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 you know, Larry's best friend, it seems like every other episode says, F you, Larry, get out of my house. And then they're at dinner the next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's this beautiful, like, you know, it, 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 it's a real, there, there's the sense in which that's not opposed to being in community. Conflict isn't opposed. Messiness isn't op- opposed. And it seems like what you're doing in this book is saying, look, these things actually are not just a negative, they're a positive. The, 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 the things that you hate about yourself, your receding hairline, <laughs> your zits, your neurosis, the mother-in-law you're embarrassed of, you know, the failed business. Many of these things are actually the, the, the building blocks for human flourishing. You know, if you can accept yeah. your finitude, you know, it, it makes your your failures um, more meaningful and your, and your success is sweeter. If you can accept finitude is what you're saying, I think. Yeah. I mean, finitude really in this book, I don't people, that's not a word. A lot of people use, I'd love to introduce it back into our vocabulary, but when they do hear it, they kind of think it means death and it can mean that, but actually at its most basic level, it just means limits. And all of us are limited in our knowledge and we're limited by space and time um, um, have emotional limits. And part of what I'm very interested in as a Christian theologian is the confusion I think that's arisen between confusing finitude and sin so that we constantly feel guilty about things that maybe aren't sin. They're just part of the goodness of being a creature. A- another simple way of saying what it means to be finite, it just means you're you and I are creatures. <laughs> and creatures are small. They, you know, glorious. We're glorious creatures, but we're small creatures. We're dependent creatures. And, and so some of what you're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in, again, Bonhoeffer's a big influence on me on this, where Bonhoeffer kind of explores the doctrine of creation before their sin and fall. And he says, mutual dependence on one another. That's not part of sin. That's not part of the fall. The fall and sin is what distorts those relationships. But the fact that we need each other is part of the good of creation. The fact that we are dependent on the earth is part of the good of creation. That's that's not a terrible thing. Augustine's view on prelapsarianism mm. that was terrible, right? Like 
in, in the sense if he said basically when we needed to reproduce you would ha- there would be no real pleasure or, or eroticism everybody would just order their genitals to sort of fire up like the enterprise like scotty give us warp speed i can't believe you just brought up augustine on prelapsarian sexual relations but yeah i mean, <laughs> I mean that would be but but honestly even that i mean i'm a, here here's the thing i i'm a for those small group of your listeners who know the name of colin gunton who is my dr Fox, know, you know i'm what? a huge gunton yeah. fan so but but you're you're so this is a little touchy for me because Gunton, who I loved and have a great debt to, loved to pick on Augustine. Uh, but of the course. problem is the problem is every time I spend a lot of time reading Augustine and Augustine specialist, he's basically wrong. <laughs> he was wrong. And so um I think when you look at even something like with Augustine, it would be interesting to explore what is he doing there, which sounds absurd to us, but may not be. But that, that's but neither there, here nor there. There's a place, I think, in book 19, though, where he basically <laughs> says he's defending the veracity of the Bible. And I yeah. love this. Yeah. And he's like, look, people that say there aren't giants. I have friends in Corsica that saw giant footprints. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there are times where Augustine sounds like, and he's the greatest thinker in Western culture, arguably. Um but there's some times where he does sound like a cable news host. Where he's like, look. <laughs> and and uh, there's another you know thing. I'm going to push back on you right now. Here we go. Here we go. This is not what we yeah, planned on good. at all, right? No, no, so, no. So I don't know. I'm a little, I guess, because I've written a lot on modern theology and Boltman and others. Part of me, this whole idea, I mean, I'm for science and all that. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not a fundamentalist. Having said that, part of me, I think of a colleague of mine who was in a class at Princeton doing his PhD. I know you've got, uh, you did work there as well. And I remember him telling me during one of the classes, one of the students from Africa, they were talking and someone brought up resurrections and like, you know, clearly they didn't mean real physical bodily resurrection talking about this. And the guy kind of raised his hand and said, well, I've seen a resurrection. Yeah. No, no one knew what to do with it and just moved on. So all I'm saying is, I don't know, giants, whatever, who knows? That's a weird I'm text not, in Genesis. Was wrong. I mean, I'm not saying Augustine was wrong either. I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, okay. like, uh, there's that great I mean, I'm not line. saying either way. It's just a fascinating thing, you know? And there's this line where in, in, I think it's, yeah, I think it's, I don't know if it's in Book 19 or not, of the City of God, but where he says, people are just challenging his view of eternal damnation with mm-hmm. fire. He's like, look, I've seen people on a North African beach roast a duck for three days, and the duck was still there. He's like, so if you don't <laughs> oh think some Nigerians can't cook a duck, you don't think God could cook you forever? This is my Augustine. God, how did this, we get here, my friend? This is Augustine is the Christian Jackie Mason. All right, here you go. You don't think you could cook a duck for three days? Oh, my word. So with finitude, this is my yeah. finitude being exposed okay. <laughs> uh, with a bad sense of humor. Okay. Um, yeah, but I think this is a great, a great thing. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, I think uh, theological anthropology for a lot of the tradition mm-hmm. has been um, kind of demonized, like it, it, or it's the thing you put in the back shelf, right? And mm. theology proper is about the father and, 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 and things. And then it's almost like the further you go down in the Trinity, 
the lower you get in theology. And I think mm. it, there's a beauty in which um, we're actually, you, you can do in the proper way theology. There's a lot we can learn mm. when it, we do theology from our guts. Mm. Right. I mean, and it has to be normed, right. Which you would agree right, like right. by scripture and tradition. And we, mm-hmm. you know, we're not saying if our guts tell us Oprah Winfrey tells us to start a church with John Travolta and you get a car and you get a car. Okay. You're going to, you're going to push back on that. But there's something about you do theology a little bit from your guts. Mm. I mean, with voices in your ear, but, but do you think that would be better if we learned a little bit to do theology more from our guts and our spleen Mm. and, and, and just, and the fact that we're made with spleens and guts, right? I mean, I mean, God can't not care. Yeah, about as you that. as you know, like that's a Hebrew way of describing our hearts. Yeah, <laughs> right. When it, it often translators are trying to make sense of how, how do we communicate this? Let's talk. Let's say it's from your heart or your soul, and it's really from your innards. You know. Um. Yeah, that's I. I appreciate what you're saying there, to be honest, because I think you do get, I, I really do take the tradition seriously. I have a very high view of, of scripture. Um, but I, I, I am very driven by concern for pastoral relevance and, um, and got, and I guess another way of saying it is I've just really learned the value of listening. Uh, part of that is through training of learning to listen to, to dead people. Uh, from mm. whom I've learned so much. But I've also really, especially in the last 10 years, learned the value of listening to God's people without degrees, you know, who don't have degrees, who tell me some of their pain, tell me some of their fears, their anxieties, their stories. And that has just really helped me. So that combined with kind of my history of studying the humanity of Jesus um, has given me a real conviction of just the importance of understanding how good of news it is that God is most clearly revealed in his son. And when we're looking at his son, he's looking back at us in human through human eyes. I mean, that's revolutionary. Um, so anyways, I'm jumping around a bit, but, but we can explore that more if you want, but in terms of, so can you a, a, give me like an example of, of, of like two people, like, okay, give me an ancient and a, living person, their intention, they're kind of on your right shoulder and left shoulder, like somebody that's ancient, that's telling you the traditional view, which you value, but then somebody that's a kind of lived person. And and, and uh, your story is not a stranger to suffering. So, I mean, I'm sure that's, yeah, you know, you you probably, I mean, I, 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 yeah, in some ways, I guess right now I'm a college professor I deal with students who are wrestling with their faith in very significant ways. The last six years or so have been very hard on a lot of um, evangelicals, the world uh, that I'm from, especially conservative evangelicals, where many young people have felt like the faith that they heard about and saw um, just because of political realities, because of other scandals, have just felt like the whole thing has fallen apart. And so them just kind of, I, I hear those stories constantly over lunch with my students and uh, them trying to wrestle with um, what's God, what's not, how do we think about these things? So um, 
they help keep me honest so I don't glorify, say, the church or pretend that theologians and, and church leaders are not making mistakes. Uh, I'm, I'm really convinced we have to be both brutally honest about the pain and struggle in this world and also just as honest about God's goodness and his presence. Uh, and different groups tend to pick one or the other of those. And I'm, I'm against us picking because I think to deny either one denies reality. Um, but our current experience often tends to draw us to one of those two or the other. But when a student, when a student comes in, right, you're a theologian, mm-hmm. a student comes in, what does it look like? I mean, if you had to give me one or two normal examples of like, here's the issue I'm struggling with. Yeah. First off, how long does it take for them to get to your office, right? Like to mm-hmm. out themselves, right? Because they're probably the outliers, right? You're yeah. in an evangelical school. And there are probably people, a lot of you, you go to chapel, you raise your hands, you're singing. Hey, this Christian is Presbyterian music. school. There's limited, right? No, I'm just so there's limited, yeah, exactly. Okay. No raising hands. Sorry. It's funny okay. hands. Don't worry. You're good. Um, yeah. Well, you know, you know, but, but, but what does it look like? It could just give, because a lot of the, the listeners mm-hmm. to this podcast don't have um, a context a for yeah. an evangelical college. And sure. So, so what does that look like for an evangelical who... I can't imagine. It's, it must be like walking across broken glass to you know, come into your office and kind of say, hey, I don't know if I want to stay in the game or not. Yeah, I yes, for definitely for some. Um, but across the board, even outside of Christian colleges, mental health issues for young people have skyrocketed. Colleges across the board are experiencing this. And Christian schools are experiencing this. But in terms of, uh, I don't know, maybe it's walking across. It definitely is for some. But it seems like there's no end to those who want to come to the office or those who want to meet for lunch and have a discussion. And and to be honest, you know what it normally looks like? It normally looks like me asking questions for about 45 minutes. It takes, I've really learned to just shut up and listen and just ask questions. And for many of them, it it often is like the first time they've really been heard with someone who's not looking to just give them an answer, but is curious. Um, And then often, honestly, by God's grace, there might be something to say near the end of that conversation, but it's not a silver bullet. It's more um, something else about you know, God's kindness or grace, or uh, sometimes it's very practical in steps. So lots of times it's pointing people to counseling and, and other kinds of things. Um, but the, the the very act of listening, I think, has been significantly healing. It's been a great gift to me. Uh, I learn a lot from the students, from their vulnerability. And, and now I've just learned, that may be true for a 20-year-old, but I teach Sunday school in my church and I can sit down with a 55 year old. And if I give them an hour and I just listen and ask questions, they are just as vulnerable. They are hurting. You teach adult Sunday school. I do. Yeah. Me, me and Colbert. Yeah. I taught children's Sunday school. You're a better person than me. I can't do that. Oh my God. It was the most, (laughs) it was like PTSD. And then that's me. But but I did, I did it because I was a single guy and I recruited a bunch of single guys. I was like, we were a young hipster church in a warehouse. And I thought it just seems sexist 
that yeah. we make the moms teach yeah. the children's time. You know, mm-hmm. that we, we would dismiss them for the sermon and stuff. And I was like, let's let the guys do it. I came out every week. I probably had uh, like, you know, four beers after the experience at lunch. Because I was like, you guys gave them hot glue guns? So there's 13 kids in children's church making crafts. I was like, I can't keep these kids safe. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, the women were like, oh, this is great. Like, we're not, we're, you know, they we do this every day. Like, we keep these kids alive. I'm like, this is like, I feel like a Navy SEAL. You put me in. Navy so still training, like, uh, and crafts. Th- no, see, this actually relates to the book <laughs> because this, finitude. Is, this is about finitude. Because now I don't think it's a gendered thing. My son, who's nineteen, um, goes to a different church. He on purpose for for some of the same reasons that you said. He volunteers and he leads this little kid Sunday school at his church, and I know it's hard, but he does it for some of the very reasons, and he's and he's good at it. Having said that, me, you know, I this is a, a true story and I'll abbreviate it. But I, I thought, yes, yeah, same thing. I signed up. I went to help. I was in charge. It was like, you know, 14, eight-year-olds or six-year-olds, something like that. And honestly, by halfway through, I was drenched with sweat. I had spilled water all over. The kids were ruling. And two high schoolers that didn't actually want to go to church saw the chaos and they came in and helped me. And I, it was... <laughs> But afterwards, the woman who was over, you know, in charge of all all the groups, I said, I I just don't think that went very good. I don't know if I should do it again. And she's like, Nope, you shouldn't. <laughs> like, you're not never going to be asked again. So the problem was, I was asked every week after that. <laughs> but but in terms of the in terms of what I'm actually concerned about is, I this is not meant as an excuse to not do hard things. I think we should no, be willing right, to right, do Sunday exactly. school even when we we don't feel good at it. But having said that, there was a high school girl who walked in to help me and it, she was so good at it and she would never think of herself as gifted at it. Yeah. But I'm drenched with sweat and often our giftings aren't things we think are gifts because they're just more natural. They're easier for us. Doesn't mean we don't have to work to develop them. Well, part of Part of the beauty of finitude is learning to recognize others' gifts and celebrate them rather than competing with everyone and feeling like we have to be the best at everything. Yeah, and anyway. it's a little bit of the backwards end of your book, but like, because mm-hmm. you, in the end of the book, talk about community and the importance of, mm-hmm. you have a nice little Trinitarian move, you're doing a little subtle things, a little structure, you get a nice little structure going on. But, but that, I mean, even, can I, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. You can interrupt. Yeah, yeah. So, so just to pick up on this, one of the things that st- stood out to me in my research that I've been thinking about the idea of humility for years, but it became very clear to me in my research in the tradition and thinking about it contemporary. I think so often we try and ground humility in sin. We basically say, you're a sinner, so you should be humble. And so I explore that a little bit in the tradition. And I think that's wrong. I've come to, no, no, no. Even if there were no sin and no fall, as a human creature, we're made to be humble. Because humility is recognizing yeah. our dependence on God, our neighbor, and the earth. That, that's not about sin. Sin heightens the need for humility, but it's not the foundation for it. And when you make sin the foundation for humility, that's how you get all these twisted self-hatred things. 
right? Yeah, I think yeah, it's it's interesting because I think like if God could have set up a hashtag in the garden, <laughs> it would have been hashtag LYL. Love your limits. <laughs> you right? Been, and, and, yeah, yeah. And your limits are great because yeah. you know this is That's one good. of the Can things. Can I steal like, that from you? LOL, uh, love your limits. Yeah, LYL, exactly. love your limits. Yeah, but it's funny when you. It, this has been reinforced watching Jewish comics. Mm. Like when you watch Jerry Seinfeld mm. and Larry David talk about comics, it, it is it is the best sense of the embrace of finitude. Like these guys talk about, like I couldn't can't do what Larry does. Yes, yes. you know I can't do what Jerry does. Like Jer yeah. like Larry David was a bad standup. Mm. He's a brilliant writer like yeah. and, and curb your enthusiasm is probably the funniest thing since mm. seinfeld and, and maybe the funniest sitcom of all time but it was part of larry david learning like early on he and jerry seinfeld were were best friends um, yeah. in new york in the stand-up scene and and jerry was the best stand-up in the world and larry david was a brilliant comedic mind that sucked at stand-up i mean yeah. like he would do stuff like F you all, you're a table audience, and walk off, <laughs> walk yeah. off the stage. But, but isn't that isn't that partly why you know Seinfeld's comedians getting coffee in cars works? Because Seinfeld right. is very comfortable in who he is. He knows where he's strong, but he also knows what he's not. Right, so yeah. he can take these other comedians out and kind of delight in their differences. And and kind of draw and you can tell the younger comedians look in awe at Jerry, but it's very clear he's like, don't try and do what I'm doing, you know. Uh, and and you, like you said, you just start to notice the differences. So, on a practical level for the Christian life, I think that's part of the challenge is because people become Christians. We look to our pastor often, and then the question is, what does it mean to follow Christ? Does it mean I have to have the personality of this pastor? Do I have to have the temperament of the pastor or can I be different? Right. How, how and and we start to confuse um sanctification with certain personality features or those kind of things. So I do think the doctrine of creation is very important to rightly have a, a fuller understanding of redemption, a fuller understanding of sanctification in the Christian life. Does that make so sense? I have a yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so okay. I want to ask you a question. Yeah. Uh, do you know the app called Clubhouse? Have you heard of this? I don't. Sorry. It's um, it's social audio. So basically you can just okay. log on and you can, there's no video. It's not like a Zoom call, but it's, you can have an open room or closed room. And um, okay. I have a friend I've developed through Clubhouse and she's lovely. Her name is Caitlin and um, she has cerebral palsy and she's in a wheelchair. Mm. And she has become a dear friend mm. um, and it's a lot of work to listen to her. Although mm. I'm getting better at it. And it's funny because when she comes into these and, and clubhouse is raucous, it's a very kind of interesting. You're just basically in rooms with people on a, it's like the old party line. I mean, kind of thing. But I notice, like, it's interesting because on one level, I think, why would God not just give her a voice mm. and let her run? 
But mm. you know, my friend, my <laughs> I had a friend Daniel, who is an actor in LA and a very prickly personality. But when when she comes on, he's the best listener to her. Mm. And he doesn't patronize her. He's like, I'm sorry, could you say it again? He's a British mm. guy. I'm yeah. sorry, could he, he could you say it again? I didn't hear you. <laughs> and I'm like, mm. this guy who I've seen be a real, you know, prickly yeah. personality to some people, her limitations mm. bring out his gifts. Mm. And so I feel like that's part of what you're talking about mm. in your work mm -hmm. is these, is this artful dance of the human condition where you're just not a good, and this is what I love about your uh, sort of, uh, I call it begrudging ecclesiology. <laughs> like, you're kind of like, I imagine you're like a Christian Larry David. Like, okay, I'll go to the church. It's okay. I'm coming in. I'm here. I'm taking communion. <laughs> you know, like, you know, this kind of uh, like realization that this is what we got. Like, mm. these weird social interactions, right? Where, People quite literally save each other in the sense mm -hmm. of their, I mean, God saves everybody, right? But God's right. not, you know, you know, God's using things to save people. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's funny. Um, I am tempted to be very cynical uh, about the church, but I also think the church is absolutely vital to the Christian life and, and, uh, she is our mother. And, um, so there is this, you know, it's kind of the famous Augustinian statement that the church may be a whore, but she's the bride of Christ and we better love her and, and yeah. be careful how we, you know, treat her. But yeah, the story about your, your friend is, is significant to me. Um, because without fully getting into some of the, you know, some of this is in my suffering book, but some of this is also, we have to be careful um, that we don't confuse difference with with bad, right? Right. Um, now, in on the one hand, there are severe disabilities, physical, mental, other, that really do produce tears and physical pain and other kinds of pain. And the great Christian hope is that one day these will be wiped away. And that's very important to me, and I don't want to deny that. However, I've really, you know, Theologians like John Swinton in Scotland has written very well on this and, and others, but, but love has a, a pace and often there are, whether it's someone with autism, right. Or, or downs or something where sometimes they actually help you discover your own humanity in a way that we've been missing it. And uh, I talk some about that and actually use it, use the illustration of Chuck Colson, who, you know, Nixon's hatchet man. He got like 14 honorary doctorates and, you know, type A personality like crazy. And then his grandson uh, was born with Downs and he just didn't know how to relate. And one day he was finally his his daughter and, and uh, grandson were visiting and he had the flu and he could just lay on the couch for like four days. And he watched his daughter relate to her son. And he was changed by it. And he finally mm. kind of entered into the space of his grandson. And, you know, the daughter would say, no, the family would say, no one can slow Chuck down except for this grandson. 
Mm. Because when he would take his grandpa to the grocery store or something, it's not a 20 minute trip. It could be three hours because he wants to show you everything and he wants to say hi to people. And anyway, so, so, so I, I, it, it is interesting to think what's difference and what's lamentable. And sometimes we need people to help us understand our own humanity in ways um, that some of us struggle with in our productivity and speed. So who was the biggest person you've been, I mean, you're on a journey mm. from, you know, you're, you, 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 I mean, you're a Calvinist Calvinist and this, um, you know, this podcast gets Calvinist validation from many PCA people, but I'm saying you're, you're a little bit of a maverick Calvinist. You know, I, I imagine you as like, as, as uh, Tom Cruise on the deck, you're buzzing the tower of, I'm not of sure why, but okay. You're, you're buzzing the tower. Uh, I, I think often people need permission to get to the next stage of their journey. And you have been on a fascinating theological journey. It's one of the reasons, like, I love talking with you. Could you, like, help people? So it's a two-part question. A, I kind of like to know, was there an influential person, if you can say their name or whatever? Because, look, I don't want them brought up on charges anywhere in some uh, Presbyterian Alabama. But but also, I mean, I just, I want to, like, specifics in particular, specifics in general, like, because there had to be some people that helped you be midwifed into a place where you could be in a generous Orthodox position. Mm. And then like the second part of the question is kind of how does the average listener who's in your shoes, who, you know, they're, they're at the potlucks and, 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 and when you kind of color a little outside the lines, you, you you know, you could kind of, it, it could be costly sociologically. How do you navigate all that? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's another, well, first of all, it would be, I mean, doing psychoanalysis on Kelly online, you know, might, might not be our best idea, but um, I don't think of myself as anything other than Orthodox. Uh, for me, Orthodoxy greatly matters and I'm really soaked in the tradition. So, um, if I start to say things and believe things that Augustine and Aquinas and um, Tertullian, much less John Owen, the Puritan I've studied, and Calvin and and others, there there can be disagreement. Right, double, pre but if, double predestination. Well, so so you'd have to unpack what that means and what it doesn't mean. But but in terms of generous orthodoxy, um, for me the journey has just been learning to listen and learning. I guess here, here's how I, rather than going down all the rabbit trails, here's how I would say it is I do think that lots of things that get communicated as vital to quote unquote orthodoxy are actually peripheral. They're not necessarily, um, or particular, uh, expressions of certain things. So, um, and for me, I do want to listen. I'm very, I'm trying to be very attentive to ways where I think theology may have gone wrong in the life of the church. So the church is the test case for me. And when I start to see people really hurt 
when I start to see power structures, of, you know, abused, those things grab my attention. It doesn't mean the theology that might have given space to that is all wrong, but it does mean we need to at least look at it if it's hurting people, right? Um, it could just be that there are problems culturally, da, da, da. But the church has its own culture. I mean, Mars Hill, the rise and fall of Mars Hill is a great example of where you just ended up getting some good ideas, twisting them and using them for terrible means. And so I'm not, I'm not interested in any of that. I'm interested in the destructive force of those things. But again, getting back to the book, what I'm really interested in then is what does it mean to be human and how do we get so sidetracked in terms of narcissism, in terms of misunderstandings of suffering? Why do we hurt people? Why are, why are we not helping people understand the benediction of God and resting in that? Um, anyways, we're, I'm sorry, we're jumping around here. This is what we do here on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I forget. But that's also, it's interesting because I think you do some great work on narcissism because I think hmm. I take from your book that you think oftentimes in certain kind of uh, church contexts, somebody is declared a narcissist just because they were in touch with themselves and, you know, and, and, and they sort of stood by their ideas you know, and, and they're not, I mean, there are real narcissists. I mean, you say, you, you know, you, it's a real thing, Yeah. but this is kind of a weapon we use, right? Like, oh, you're a narcissist and we marginalize you and that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm trying to think of where you're, you're thinking through that. I mean, I'm deeply worried about narcissism and even, you know, non-diagnosable just, just forms of that. But I guess what I would say, my friend Chuck DeGroat wrote, as you probably know, a great book on when narcissism goes to church, it's a great book. I recommend it to folks. Um, you know why Chuck DeGroat will never be a narcissist? <laughs> why? Because he's in the Reformed Church of America, which has like is is, is in terminal decline. Like <laughs> you, you know, it, it, that's the best thing. Go to an irrelevant denomination, mainline denomination, <laughs> and be. Hey man, the, I, I live in a little lookout mountain, Georgia. Nobody knows who I am and cares. It's a great. But the, but, but the PCA though, you still have the PCA thing going on, which is still small. a little bit of. A, we are small compared to the world in but terms the, of God. Your, but what your God internet is doing footprint in the world. though is huge. Yeah. Like so. But if you, if Kelly Caper, <laughs> cap it. Wait, I'm saying it wrong. How do I? Who say? cares? Whatever. If it's, if KK, if, if you, if it's fine. No, don't say KK because then someone will throw in a third K, exactly. and you know, K squared. If K squared says something, it's fine. But I'm saying, like, I think that the what's interesting is there's some like what's fascinating to me with the PCA, and some of my best friends are in the PCA. No, I mean, no. It's always a scary line when someone says, some of my best friends are, I don't know, yeah, but, whatever comes but, out of your mouth next is probably not going to make me happy, but go ahead. <laughs> but I, I, it's a very interesting ecclesial context in that people are very patrolling um, without a lot of generosity in the sense of, like the PCA could be great if they had popes. Right, because the popes. We all have popes. I mean, Baptists have popes, Presbyterians have popes. It, it's funny. No, but, but, but different, but Franciscans and the Dominicans had the Arminian argument. I forget what century it was, but it was, it was pre-Reformation. I think it was the 13th or 12th century. Yeah. And basically the Dominicans were arguing the Calvinist thing. Uh, or no, it was Franciscans. It was the Arminian Calvinist debate. <laughs> and the Pope basically said, all right, 
you're both being naughty. You both need to go back to your monasteries and you can both teach what you're doing, but you can't say no one's a bad Catholic. Everyone is a good Catholic and you guys can argue the predestination free will thing, but you have to say everyone's a good Catholic and you have to let yeah, I mean, the people of the other orders go to communion. I, so here, here's, here's where this conversation has just gone, which is very funny to me uh, emotionally. So when I was, I'm the youngest of three boys, right? And in my house, we would fight like crazy. I bear the marks and scars on my body to this day, right? But when we were out of the house, I remember being stunned because one time at a park, we got into a fight. And it was like we were the best of friends and we had each other's backs, right? <laughs> and, you know, and and so, listen, it all depends when whether it's the PCA or another denomination, who do you have in mind? You know, and I don't actually want to get into names, but is it internet presence? Is it is it significant? Because I have met people that are very irritating and judgmental in the PCA. But I have also known leaders who are incredibly gracious and humble who, who have absorbed great uh, unfair critique. I, I've known, you know, so it, it the stereotypes um, are, are dangerous. And, and the problem is the internet now, the voices on those spaces tend to define denominations and ideas. And so that's partly why I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Instagram. It, it, it's nothing my publishers are happy about, but for my own sanity, um, I try and stay away because it, it takes me away from actual concrete people, and I find it just raises my blood pressure. It makes me start to use stereotypes. And so I, I don't know. I just know my students are real people trying to have faith. Uh, my colleagues, my church, it's my church is messed up, and it's a beautiful place. So I don't know. Yeah, if I could do a, a, like a subtitle on your book or a sub-subtitle book, it would be redemptive particularity. Oh, I like that. That's good. Way to go. Yeah, because I because I think that you you set up a, a, a kind of hermeneutical framework or an interpretive framework for people. Hermeneutic is I want to ban myself from ever saying the word hermeneutic again because <laughs> it's, it's skeet- I know, but it's so good, isn't it? But just Even how you terrible. interpret things, I think you're saying like give people a little bit of a wider berth. Yeah, I, I and so so maybe this is an example. So I'm deeply concerned about injustice issues uh, in my denomination. We've even had to be public about this written. There is no question that there is racial prejudice and genuine injustice and deep issues from the beginning of my denomination and before the denomination from which we were birthed that goes back, you know, long before. We need to be very honest about those things. We need to... Um, Kind of work to them. And then I find, though, you get into our day where things are so charged that you have kind of a reaction and then an overreaction where now when some of us talk about the importance of diversity and listening to voices who are marginalized and that kind of thing, people say that's just political correctness. I would say that's not political correctness. That's just a theology of being creatures and particularity. Absolutely. And we need to value the particularity. So I hate how politicized everything has become because it's really distorting good theology. And so part of what I'm trying to do in this book is even a, in an, a, an end run on some of this kind of coming around at the back saying, 
these issues are really important. Don't don't get confused. Don't start to think, ah, oh, that's just political. You know, well, it is political because we worship a king named Jesus and his kingdom comes from every tribe and nation and tongue. And uh, so we need to value and honor particularity. And that's part of the good of humility and the church or it's supposed to be. So this is going to kill your book, but I would say, oh, no. you know, Here we go. give a positive re- review to your book, I think. What's that? Who would? If he was alive today. Oh, no. What are you going to say? I think Frederick Nietzsche would give oh. a really positive review to your book because he was a tortured guy mm. who was in an impossible... He had, a, for all accounts, had a good dad who died early, um, and he was in an impossibly controlling home, like... Mm with his controlling mother and controlling Lutheran sisters. And he just couldn't deal with it. He just was not allowed to be himself. And, you know, it's very interesting because this is, Nietzsche is my favorite philosopher. Mm. And I'm always looking for any, in anything I read, I kind of, um, because I am a Christian, I'm I'm Mm. always looking for the redemption of Nietzsche. Mm. And your book is, could be, no, this is might kill you in certain circles. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I can only There's imagine certain... Nietzsche reading the book, but yeah, I do talk about him in, in the suffering book. Cause I, I think he, I off, I think Nietzsche's critiques are often spot on. I just don't think his answers are satisfying. I think he, he tells, could... he tells the truth often. I think himself, you know, some of his issues and people debate about mental illness and other, other things going on there, but the guy had an insightful understanding of human creatures um, but I think his, his Ubermensch, this kind of idea is him wrestling with some of these things, but then I, I guess I'm not sure he would love the book because, um, because of how he often thinks of power is a little, is pretty different than my, no, my argument for interdependence. That's a misinterpretation. I think Nietzsche thinks power is, if your version of power is painting on the Mediterranean, I, He's not a fascist. I mean, he just is thinking like, look, just give me space. He thinks of power as agency. And that's where I think actually Nietzsche and you could have a really good conversation. Yeah, well, that'd be fun. Can you work that one out? <laughs> well, exactly. In heaven, like, let's say, okay, you're post-millennial, right? What are you, A-mill, post-mill? No, let's, we're not getting into these eschatological well, debates. Well, let's say this, you know, and, and for my Jewish and secular listeners, I apologize we're oh, getting into, goodness. but do you imagine, like, let's say you could meet Nietzsche in the afterlife, and and you guys are both theological anthropologists. Mm-hmm. What what would you ask him, and what would you want him to ask you? I think I would ask. I, I actually think, like, his. I think he was right on when he talks kind of about the madman. Um. I think he's 120 years ahead of his time in terms of the analysis that he has right. When he says, God is dead, God is dead, we've killed him. And then, I mean, Nietzsche's brilliant because what he does is say, everyone thinks he's attacking Christians in that scene. He's not. He's actually, I mean, he's got plenty of vitriol for Christians at times, but he's actually attacking people who mock Christianity and all of this and yet still want to live with the benefits of it. They still want to live with their lives having meaning and purpose and that uh, all this. 
And and so I would love to explore that discussion with him because um, when he says they're still not ready, they're still not ready, I would love to know, did he actually feel ready? Did he really feel ready to give it all up? Because it at times it seems like he knows better. Um, anyways. And I don't know what I'd I want to be. Okay. Like, uh, in the afterlife, if there is an afterlife, which I, you know, I think there is, if there is one, this is the interview I want to do with you and Frederick <laughs> Nietzsche. I think this would be, but I think he would like your project in the sense of, I mean, he, I think had your book been written in the 19th century, I think a, a Christian alternative to real existential humanity. I think Nietzsche might not have been an atheist. I mean, there just wasn't. I, I think that I think part of the project you're pushing, hmm. which could get you kicked out of the PCA, but also there's lots of denominations. Oh, there's nothing. <laughs> nothing that, I wrote know. in there that you gave me intro. Anyway, well, you know, you know, yeah, but yeah. Look, we have to be a little provocative. Look, it's we're we're working for the listeners here. Um, no, but I just think I think, you know, it, it, the greatest thing in heaven will be. When I'm sitting doing a panel with you, Peter Lehart, and Frederick Nietzsche. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, you know what's interesting though? With Nietzsche, I do think it would be fascinating to talk with him about what it means to be human. Um I am of the conviction, whether it's you know, you you name the person or or theory, whether it's Marx, whether it's Freud, whether it's Nietzsche. Rather than instantly critique, I think we always need to listen. What are they saying? What do, what do they have their finger on? And by and large, it's there's always almost always something that the church at the time is neglecting, downplaying, or ignoring, right? Um, and I think he is interested in a non... I, I don't know. I mean, gosh, we're, we're out of my field. I mean, I've read Nietzsche, but I'm no Nietzschean scholar. But I do think... Uh, understanding a Christian account of anthropology, what it means to be human, that's, that's an earthy spirituality, w- might lead to a very interesting conversation, right? And it was not available at his time. I mean, it, the project you're working on is the thing Nietzsche, that could have kept Nietzsche Christian, I think. I mean, it, had he had someone that was working in a robustly theological anthropological and also not pulling punches. I mean, that's the Mm. thing you don't pull punches, right? You talk about sex, you talk about psychological predilections, Mm. you know, I mean, I I think that's the thing that I I think Nietzsche would have looked at and said, I could talk to this guy, you know, like this is, this is someone that, you know, and, and maybe there's some space you know, uh, maybe there's some kind of conference or something that could be done or, or, or some kind of dialogue group. Because I think the work you're doing, and there are a lot of my friends that do professional work that are Nietzscheans, they're not reductionists. Hmm. They're looking for big answers to big questions. And, and you're doing that. I mean, and the courage it takes to do that it is... And the discipline. I mean, you know, it, it, we should 
really salute you. I think that's kind of you. It, it frightens me a little bit. <laughs> well, it's okay to be scared. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I am just, the humanity of Jesus is very significant to me. Uh, I think in this way, exploring what it means to be human is important. And I'm very concerned that when Christians, when we disconnect creation from redemption, we end up in trouble. Um, we end up with a spirituality and a view of, of the Christian life that's, that's stunted. Um, and so even, even the signs that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, you know, in Matthew are, you know, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the poor have the euangelion, have the good news preached to them. Those are all very earthy, right? Those are marks that the creator has come to make right his creation. Um, and, and the goal for Christians is not the, you know, is not to become superhuman, but truly human, right? It's kind of like the Eastern Orthodox theologian, John Zazulis talks a lot about that, that, that humans were made in certain ways to function in relationship to God, the earth and others. And so we, he doesn't want to say non-Christians are not human. I mean, that's not fair to him. And he talks about biological, but, but if the theological conviction is humans were actually designed to have a particular kind of relationship with a creator, which we'd call worship and communion, then if that's disrupted, there is a sense in which our humanity is compromised. If we were really designed to be in harmony and shalom with others, and that's disrupted, our humanity is compromised. If we're supposed to be in harmony with the earth and it's disrupted, then, then it's, you know. So um, what's sin, what's finitude is definitely worth exploring um, in order that we might get some more taste of shalom, even in this present, you know, I'm interested in that. If you can imagine anybody just sitting down, any celebrity, any thinker, politician to talk about this book, who would it be? Gosh, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, that's why I do this. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Someone like Matt Damon would be fun. He comes to mind. Um, I'm interested in, you know, people who, who would take life seriously and, and be, curious um yeah i don't know i'd have to think about that more that's a great question well we have five seconds i'll give you 10 seconds <laughs> I, I gave you matt damon he was my choice now matt damon give me that i don't i don't love matt damon as a choice oh come on i, I mean i think matt damon's not terrible <laughs> it's just because because some of the more recent movies have been uh have been not so good um or okay, I'll give you two choices. You can new and you can make a new choice, or you can explain why Matt Damon. Okay. Um, I you know in some ways I think the reason Matt Damon came to mind is he started his career so early with this very deep sense. You know, he and Ben Affleck trying to explore the meaning of life, and then you get this kind of, and then it feels like in many ways he kind of has floated away from some of that. Yeah. And some of that early work was was pretty romanticized, but it was good intent, right? It's kind of like when I work with college students. They were zealous. They thought they had this great existential insight when they wrote Goodwill Hunting. But I think they realized it's not enough. It's not satisfying. We need some de we need transcendence. Um so I I am interested in people who would be willing to explore the true need of transcendence and why we're, we're struggling to not have it. But I think I would like to see you with Rosie O'Donnell. 
Yeah. So we have a hard I'd like stop. to talk to LeBron James. Does that work? <laughs> LeBron James, of course. I he mean, he would be like, fantastic. I think he's he's constantly attacked because in some ways he's he he he's guilty of it himself. He presents himself as superhuman. But in other ways, man, the guy, the way he's attacked, it's you can't do enough, right? He's attacked constantly. And I, I think that's part of our our problem is celebrities both contribute to the problem and then suffer from it because they're trying to be more than they actually can be. They're trying to solve the world's problems. They're trying to be able to talk well about politics, about sports, about gender issues, about race, about everything. They're not, they're just humans, right? They, you know, but um, I am interested in some of the Though I, I think it'd be fascinating to talk to a lot of celebrities about this privately because I think they're crushed. I actually, in no way do I envy them. I look at them and I see how exhausted they are. And I just saw an interview with Jennifer Lawrence the other day and she's pregnant and she had, uh, Stephen Colbert interviewed her and she'd taken off three, four years. And you could tell she was like, I just, she didn't use this language, but like, I discovered I'm human. I, I discovered the joy of cleaning my house and not going around and having fans everywhere. So I actually think, and as a Christian, I'm not really into a lot of apologetics. I think discussions about being truly human is a great way into a discussion about what it means to be a Christian and why this ancient faith has something to say. It's 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 very earthy. It's Irenaeus, right? Like the uh, yeah. the glory of God is man fully alive. Yeah. Exactly. And, and and the glory of man is the, is the glory of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Irenaeus has it exactly right. It's interesting, Augustine, when Augustine talks about this, he has this very interesting statement where he says, God is able to love what he made, that is these human creatures made in his image, and to hate what we made, which he has in mind there in the context sin, right? God is able to hate the sin but really love us in our particularity. And you have, again, some. I'm in the Reformed tradition, sometimes because we take sin so seriously, sometimes it can sound like God just hates us, right? Which leads to all kinds of problems. On the other hand, you have people who will constantly say, we're great humans and downplay the problems of sin. And, you know, the Me Too movement and countless other things are like, let's be honest, things are really bad. And even people that appear good have dark sides, right? John Howard Yoder, uh, Ravi Zacharias are Christian examples, but you could go on, you know? Um, so I, I think actually exploring some of that, to be honest for our, about for, the, our, for our secular listeners, these are yeah. some um, evangelical folks who've had some struggles. What I want to ask you, yeah, and Yoder way, wouldn't even uh, call himself wouldn't have called himself an evangelical, but a very significant, uh, yeah, very you know, yeah, yeah, pacifist, a great right. ethical thinker who had some. But I'm I'm sitting there thinking I would love to like put you in a room with John Piper, a star a Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. it couldn't be shots. I mean, it could it would have yeah, to yeah. be Starbucks. Hey, what do you like? Let's say you know we're doing a documentary, like because you know one of my favorite documentaries is Doug Wilson and Christopher Hitchens. I think it's just amazing. It's a it, you know mm -hmm. where the where this really right wing apologist dialogues with Hitchens, who was a man was near and dear to my heart. You guys are both Christian. If you sit down at Starbucks, 
right? With Piper, do you think you could, because you're both baptized, you're both in... I think we'd have a lot, you know, he he wrote a forward for one of my books early on. He wrote I did a not forward. know that. Yeah, he wrote a forward for a book I edited um, on overcoming sin and temptation. And, you know, the reality though is... But what would you ask him? Like, you're in the coffee shop. Who, first off, who asks the first question, you or him? I would. I'm the junior. I I have so much to learn from him. Here's listen for all the frustrations people have with Piper, and I have my own differences on on some things. Here is someone who imperfectly, but has been in the ministry for decades. Um, no know, scandals. As far as I know, there's no scandals. I do know people who are very close to him that speak of great integrity behind the scenes, and so. Again, I just think we live in this time where we're supposed to say that person has a white hat, that person wears a black hat. We are all messed up, right? <laughs> and and I'm sure Piper, I would I here's what I would love to ask him. I would say you've been doing this for decades. You're near the end of your journey. Tell me wh- in what areas have you changed your mind? Tell me wow. what, what tell me what you th- you wish you could tell 20-year-old John Piper? I'd love to ask those kind of questions. Um, what if we could set that up? Would you do that on the show? Ask Piper questions? Sure, I'd ask him questions. Yeah, if we could, if we, you could take over the show, I would just be in the background. And it's you and Piper. Because I think that would be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I, whether it's Piper or anybody, the reality is... I, Rachel Hold Evans is someone who has uh, sadly passed away in recent times. And she and I, from what I can tell, would have some theological differences. But I recently found myself going through one of her her later books. I learned a great amount from her. I would have loved to ask her all kinds of questions about the hurts and about different things as she kind of started to wrestle with, can I love the church again? And some of those things. Um I just wish, I do wish we were able to ask questions and not gotcha questions. That's the problem is I do think with people, whether they're on our left or our right, whatever that means, whether it's politically, theologically, or otherwise, very few honest conversations are happening. It is often about a trap. It is often about setting people up, trying to make clear lines. And um, I just don't think that, reflects grace. I don't think it reflects the goodness of God. So um, I wouldn't be interested in gotcha things, but I, there's, you know, a lot of, I, I would love to learn from him and countless other people. So. I think you should take over the show really basically, because you're a, you're a more interesting <laughs> no. person than him. Kelly, no. you, you've given me a lot of time. I'm grateful. And as our listeners, because um, the last interview you did, we got a lot of um, just positive feedback and oh, that's kind. best wishes on your book. And is there any parting words you want to say? Anything, any film you want to just totally <laughs> hate on or a show you want to promote or <laughs> you want to do any, this is the time for the plugs. I mean, or, or the rants. And is there anything you want to just close out with? Yeah, not really, except for, you know, it, Here's the thing. Okay. Here's the ending thought, right? How I am deeply concerned with social media and yet I am utterly dependent upon other people to use it to help spread the word about my book. (laughs) 
I'm on a podcast right now, right? So I don't know what the rant is, but I think there's this interesting tension socially, and it's not just a Christian thing. How do we do social media? How do we do the ability to reach massive amounts of people? How do we do this in healthy ways that doesn't promote narcissism, that doesn't promote false pictures of people, uh, that's more honest, that's more healthy? I would love to see that. I don't know the answers, but I'm thankful people like you are doing it so that I I can visit, but I don't have to do it as part of my life. <laughs> well, that could be your Holy Spirit kind of book. Like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Kelly, this has been great. And you're um, you're great. This is fun. And uh, you know, any anyone who's mad at me about this interview, just go ahead and write Scott about it. <laughs> exactly. We love that. We love feedback. All publicity is good publicity. Oh, Thank my you, my goodness. friends. Yeah, you got it. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.